scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 through 10. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says design, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is the very word of God. Every year, for the last, I think, eight years, we have done a three-week sermon series right here in the month of August, called Crosstown Basics. That's what we're beginning this morning, once again, speaking about what we believe are the three absolute essentials for fulfilling our mission of making disciples of Jesus by exposing people to credible gospel community. Those three essentials are, you're supposed to know, gospel, community, don't have to preach the series. You got it. But we preach the series every year because we believe gospel, community, and mission are three essential ingredients, the three essential ingredients to fulfilling the mission of making disciples of Jesus by exposing people to credible gospel community. So it's important, of course, that we understand why these three things are so critical, so necessary, so important, and that we understand what we mean when we speak of gospel, community, and mission. So my task this morning is to remind us of the importance of the gospel, of the gospel. Now, how do we, how do, we do that? Every sermon, if it's a faithful biblical sermon, so hopefully we preach here at Crosstown week in and week out, should be centered in around the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we sing about in worship, what we are remembering in communion should all be centered around the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the gospel is the most central message of the Bible. It is the most precious possession, treasure that we share together as members of his body, we have to know the gospel, understand the gospel, believe the gospel. We need to defend the gospel from those who would want to spin it a different direction, perhaps. 
The gospel is important, and we need to be clear about it. But there's also another danger when it comes to the gospel that I've been pondering for the last several months as I knew this would be my assignment on this day, and that is the fact that we need to not limit the fullness of all that the gospel is. We need to know the gospel. We need to be able to articulate it, even be able to say it succinctly. Um, If you're a member here, you remember during your membership interview that the elders looked you in the eye and said, what is the gospel? 60 seconds or less. So we're looking for some kind of a summary statement of the gospel. However, while those gospel summaries that you know and have shared as a member of this church matters, we also need to get in the water a little in the deep end too. We, we need to think more fully about all that the gospel is. Oftentimes in our desire to be clear about the gospel, we will often say, this is the gospel and this is not the gospel. And, and, and it often sounds when we say that's not the gospel, like we are kind of taking the, the high ground, we are being more precise, more correct. But the gospel is not only short and sweet, we should be able to summarize it easily, but it is also deep and encompassing. And we need to come to grips with the reality of all that the gospel is for us. So I've been thinking about this for some time. And, and so one of, the, one of the studies that I did recently was I, I searched through the Bible. Thankfully, technology is super helpful with this. And I found all of the times in which the Bible refers to the gospel and then is followed with the words, with the word of, the gospel of, and then there's a descriptions that follow. And this occurs, I think, about 30 to 40 times in the Bible. And, uh, and it was interesting to me what the Bible has to say about what the gospel is. It, I think, gives us a, a more full picture, a fuller picture of the deep end of the gospel, if you will. What is the fullness of this good news that we believe? And so this morning, based on that study that you could do as well, um, I want to speak to us about the fullness of the gospel in these three areas, kind of the three main ways the Bible describes the gospel. The gospel is the good news of God. The gospel is the good news of the Messiah. And the gospel is the good news of salvation. The gospel is the good news of God. It is the good news of the Messiah. And it is the good news of salvation. Now, let's begin. According to the book of Mark, Jesus began his public ministry proclaiming the gospel of God. The apostle Paul said that he was set apart for the gospel of God. The most common way that the Bible describes the gospel, at least in the, uh, the way the English is set up by speaking of the gospel of something, is more than anything else, the Bible speaks of the gospel as the gospel of God. It is his good news. It originates 
from God. It belongs to God. The gospel is not good news that we make up. We have to hear it as God tells it. And it means what and only what God says that it means. So two observations that come from the fact that the Bible most readily speaks of the gospel as the gospel of God. First of all, if this good news is God's good news, then we should expect that it is something, uh, I'm going to use the word supernatural. And what I mean by that is that it is strange in comparison to what we would expect from the human mind. Whatever this good news is, if it is first and foremost the good news of God, then it does not originate from the human mind. Given enough time, we would not have come up with this good news. The gospel is God's invention. It is not man's invention. It is not, the Bible says explicitly in Galatians 1.11, it is not man's gospel. It is God's gospel. The gospel is supernatural. It is counterintuitive to the human mind because It has its origin in the mind of God, not in the mind of man. But the second thing I observe is that this gospel of God tells us something remarkable about God himself. Namely, he is not a distant deity. God, this God, has his hands dirty with our world. Being heavily evolved in the affairs of planet Earth, and in human experience. So the Bible begins, of course, by telling us, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Bible tells us that God is the originator, the creator of planet earth, and indeed of all material existence. Now, we can debate all day long the, the, the numerous questions that come within and the validity of the fact that there is a God who as creator is not confined to the universe he originated. That whole idea that there is a God, that he created everything that there is, that he's before anything existed, it creates lots of questions in our mind. Um, We we begin our catechism class this morning, uh, cycle one, which is the very first question, who is the first and best of beings? God is the first and best being. So we were thinking, what does it mean that God is the first being? And so the students were right on point. That means God was before anything else. And we said, well, then what was there before God? Nothing. God was always there. And you could see where it's like the mind is just trying to comprehend what is incomprehensible. So there's all kinds of questions that come from what the Bible just explicitly says in Genesis 1.1. But my point of observation here is simply to say that calling the gospel, the gospel of God, goes hand in hand with the very first verse of the Bible and the notion that God is the creator of everything there is. As maker of the world, God also is the one who brings good news to the world that he has made. God is not a distant deity. He is very much concerned, very much engaged with the world that he has made. 
So it's natural for us to ask who this God is, to seek to know him who made the world and who possesses good news for our world. If the gospel is the gospel of God, it tells us first and foremost much about who this God is. What is he like? Again, when we look to the Bible, we we might be surprised to find that from the very beginning, God is just there in the beginning, God. Throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we don't find explanations of how God could just be there. It's just enough to say that God exists, that he's the supreme being who created the world and everything in it. But, but here's the problem. When we talk about God, not, not even just among ourselves, but in the world in which we live, there's many differing assumptions about what God must be like. How do you think of God? Most likely, how you think of God is quite different from your Muslim neighbor or coworker. But it's also no doubt different in many respects from how the person sitting next to you might think of God. The problem here is that we assume that we know who God is and what he must be like. If there's a God, we start imagining, we start thinking of what this God must be like. But here's what the New Testament, the New Testament says completely the opposite. The New Testament tells us that our assumptions about who God is, what he's like, are way off. If you even get to the point where you say, yes, there's a God, what you probably think next is wrong. In fact, the only way to know who God truly is, is by his good news, by the gospel of God. And here then we observe that the Bible also routinely calls this gospel of God the gospel of Jesus. It's the second most um, occurrence of gospel of. It's not only the gospel of God, but the Bible also speaks of the gospel as the gospel of Jesus. And note here, this is not two different gospels anymore than we have two different gods. Rather, you cannot know the good news of God without knowing Jesus. If you want to know the gospel, you have to know Jesus. And if you want to know God, you need to know Jesus too. God, gospel, Jesus, each informs and explains the other. And without one, we cannot fully know the other. So where do you begin then? If we need gospel, God, Jesus, where do we jump in? And and the Bible says the place to put your focus is on Jesus. We all have our assumptions about God, but to truly know God, we need to take a close look at Jesus and then let our ideas about God be shaped by him rather than the other way around. You don't start with your ideas of what God must be like and then place those on Jesus. You look at Jesus, the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, and you let him shape and form everything you think and believe about God. And the same is true about the gospel. To know the gospel, we must begin here. We must concentrate on knowing Jesus. This is the place to begin. Now, of course, nowadays, 2,000 years into Christian history, we have a similar problem. We have much the same problem with Jesus that we have with God. We, we assume that we know him, that we have him figured out And yet, 
what you think about Jesus is probably very different from your neighbor next door. And is it possible even your neighbor again sitting next to you on this Sunday morning? Do we have too many assumptions about Jesus that are shaped mainly by the stream of faith in which we were raised? You and I know, as evangelical Christians, that our authority on Jesus has to be the Word of God. It has to be what the Bible says about Jesus. And when we read our Bibles, when we come to our Bibles saying, okay, we want to know this Jesus, so we, we open our Bibles and we start reading, here's the first thing that we might, might find, we should find. Jesus was a puzzling figure in the first century. If we're really going to understand and know Jesus, we need to be a little bit more perplexed by him as well. See, the crux of the matter, and we read our Bibles, is the question over whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. Because the gospel of God is the gospel of Israel's Messiah. I'm going to show you here in a minute, the two cannot be separated. You cannot speak of the gospel, the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus, and not be speaking about the gospel of the Messiah of Israel. So the question becomes throughout the pages of the New Testament, is Jesus Israel's Messiah? And what would that mean anyway, if he is? So during Jesus' lifetime, various theories existed as to who he was. But we are also given a, a definitive statement about his identity. You'll remember it. When Peter says about Jesus in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ the son of the living God, Jesus answers, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So whatever else we might say about Jesus, we're trying to build our, our understanding of God and his gospel by looking at who Jesus is. The first thing we come to understand clear as day from the Bible, undebatable, is the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Peter declares it, Jesus says, you know it because the Father showed this to you. So we, we, this is uncontroversial, clear as day. This is what the Bible has to say. Jesus is the Christ. And it is this designation that is central to our understanding of the gospel. Do you know Jesus as the Christ? You see, when the Bible, here, this is what's interesting about it. When the Bible refers to the gospel as the gospel of Jesus... It never, not one time, ever just says Jesus. Not once. It always refers to Jesus with reference to his Christology or to his Messiahship. It never says the gospel of Jesus. It's always the gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel of Christ Jesus. So if you want to understand the good news, you got to know Jesus. But let's get more specific. You have to know Jesus as the Christ. So what, is, what, what does that mean? Let's, let's, let's be clear. Christ is primarily a title like president or king or doctor. It is not primarily, although it came to be used this way, Jesus' last name. You got that? We're, we're, we're clear about this, right? His name was Jesus of Nazareth. That's what he, his name. But he, he is known with a title. 
title of Christ. We can refer to Jesus with the word Christ, or we can use the designation before or after the name of Jesus. He's known just as Christ, or he's known as Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus. But we must grasp the significance of the designation if we're going to know who this Jesus is. The Christ is a designation for the expected Jewish deliverer, promised in the Old Testament, the Messiah, which is the Hebrew word for Christ, both Messiah and Christ mean the anointed one. To speak of the gospel as the gospel of Christ is to speak of the good news that the promised deliverer of Israel has come. This long expected deliverer of Israel means something really objective if you're a Jew in the first century, like Peter. So when Peter says in his great confession, You are the Christ. And when Jesus affirms his statement, we need to think, we need to get in our minds, what exactly did Peter, and Jesus for that matter, think that meant? That Jesus was the Messiah. And this might be a surprise to some of us, but let it sink in for a moment. He did not mean, Peter did not mean, when he said, you are the Christ, that Jesus was God himself, the incarnate second person of the Trinity. I'm not saying that's not who Jesus is. So don't throw me out the church just yet. I'm saying that when Peter says, you are the Christ, he wasn't thinking second person of the Trinity, God incarnate. That's not what, he was, in, that's not what was in his mind. There are plenty of disagreements in Jesus' day about who the Messiah would be, what that would entail. But the one thing that everybody believed about the Messiah is that he would be the promised king of the Jews. And that as the promised king of the Jews, the expectation is that with his arrival, Israel's long history, I'm talking Old Testament. Remember all these stories that you know? The whole story of God, all of that, that whole story, Israel's long story would at last reach its divinely ordained goal. That's what it would mean for Messiah to be here. So if you're a Jew in the first century and you say, you're the Messiah, you see the load of expectation that comes with that confession. If the Christ, the Messiah, is understood to be the king of the Jews, then it should not surprise us that any talk about someone being this messianic king would also include talk about his ensuing kingdom. When someone is elected the new president of the United States, we quickly begin to imagine that within a couple months, what's the new administration going to be like? If the gospel of God is the good news that the promised king, the Messiah, has come, then this gospel is also the good news about the promised kingdom that has arrived with the king. Are you following me? Are you with me here? And it's not surprising then to find that the third most common description of the gospel, first, the gospel of God, second, the gospel of Jesus Christ, The third most frequent occurrence, description of the gospel in the the Bible is the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, Luke 4, 43. And, And if you and I are going to believe and proclaim 
and embrace the gospel, then we must also embrace the gospel of the kingdom. We must preach the same gospel that Jesus preached. We must proclaim the good news that the kingdom of God has come. And to do this, we gotta, we gotta connect the dots properly between the gospel of Israel's king and the gospel of this king's kingdom. If Jesus is indeed Israel's king, finally bringing Israel to its divinely ordained goal, then understand that this gospel is this gospel of the kingdom is not up there in heaven. Amen. You got it, brother. This gospel of the kingdom is on earth. The gospel is not primarily about how you and I can get to heaven to be with God and his reign there. The gospel is primarily about how God comes down to earth to be with us and reign with us here. Oh, I hope we get this. The gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus the Messiah And the gospel of the kingdom is good news because it has as its primary place of reference the material universe you inhabit right now. So if the gospel we preach is primarily or essentially a message about how to get to heaven when you die, then we are not preaching the gospel of God or the gospel of Jesus the Messiah or the gospel of the kingdom. If that's the primary message we have, it's a message that is more at home with paganism than it is with the God of the Bible. It is, in fact, more at home with Roman or Greek mythology, with its fantasies about the disembodied world of the gods that you sneered at when you heard about it and said, ha it's crazy that people would think about that. This is primarily more a message that's more in line with the spiritism of the age than it is with the God of the Bible who is so tangible that he takes on flesh and walks among us. No wonder then, if this is the gospel we preach, if this is the way that we're going to go around and make disciples is telling people primarily, and the word primarily matters here, primarily about how to get to heaven when you die, no wonder It doesn't resonate too much with a people who can't help but be more concerned about the embodied life that we live and the only life we know. The only life we know is this embodied life that we live in now, complete with its concern for sustenance and pleasure, or at least the avoidance of pain and misery. Then this gospel needs to be good news there. Israel understood the gospel as the good news that life on earth would flourish again when the promised Messiah arrived and established his rule and reign on earth as God reigns in heaven. This is the gospel of the kingdom, and it's the gospel that Jesus preached. I want to preach that same gospel. Don't you? Now, I I, I don't think I'd have to say this to most of you, but in case you're wondering... This is not to say that the gospel offers us no hope about what awaits us after death. Of course it does. In those moments when life is about to leave your your body, 
The gospel is really good news. But the gospel is good news like that in light of what God has done for the life we do know, embodied life on earth. So the reason why the followers of Jesus, I'm thinking here now of Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears to a couple of disciples on their way to Emmaus. Remember the story in Luke 24? If you don't, you you should turn there and read it. Because following the death, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the announcement that something crazy happened around the tomb, and some people are saying he's alive, you got a couple followers of Jesus that are just discouraged as they journey to, to Emmaus. They're discouraged, they say. They tell Jesus, who appeared to them walking along the way. Here's what they they say. We thought this Jesus was the Messiah. We thought that he was the one who would, this is Luke 24, 21. We thought he was the one who would redeem Israel. Who would once and for all establish God's kingdom on earth. We thought that's who Jesus was. Their assumptions, of course, needed to be corrected, but not where we often think they were wrong. Jesus says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah, the Christ, would suffer these things and enter into his glory? Enter into his kingdom. His glory, right? His rule and reign. Was it not necessary that if Jesus, the one you're talking about, is indeed the Christ, then of course he would suffer. Of course that would have to happen before the kingdom would come. How do you not know this, Jesus is saying? I mean, after all, is this not how Israel's story has always gone? Think of your Bibles. Did not the nation have to suffer slavery in Egypt before they entered the glory of the promised land? Of course they did. You know the story. Did not David have to go into battle alone against the giant before he assumed the throne? Isn't that the story? Don't you know that story? (laughs) Did not Daniel have to get thrown into the den of lions before he was exalted and the pagan king proclaimed, there is a God, the one true God, whose kingdom shall never be destroyed, Daniel 6, 25. Isn't this the story? Isn't this Israel's story all along? The Messiah will have to suffer just as Israel has always suffered before the kingdom would come. But then, but then, vindication always follows the suffering. Exodus follows the slavery in Egypt. The rule and reign of David follows the battle with the giant. And when Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, fully embodied, note, fully embodied, and yet in a body that could no longer die, the good news was now made manifest. The good news, the answer to the question that Ezekiel the prophet was asked, can the dead live again? 
Ezekiel 37, five and six, this is what the Lord says to these bones. Look, I am bringing a living spirit into you and I will place tendons upon you, bring flesh upon you, stretch out skin over you and place my spirit into you and you will live and know that I am the Lord. So yes, there is life after death but not by escaping to a different world into a disembodied state that is destroyed by death. Jesus died and rose again to defeat death and the sin which is its proximate cause to bring about a restored world, a new world, a new creation. This is the good news of Jesus the Messiah. I think we should preach that message. That's really good news. It's good news when there's healing from the sickness, but it's also good news when there's no more hope. When the doctors say, we've got nothing left to offer you. This is the good news because even if you're cured, you still die. This is the good news that even if you die, you will live again. Maybe part of the reason I had these all shared testimony this morning of, is because something crazy happened to me um, this week. I was sitting in a coffee shop, my, f- my favorite coffee shop. Nobody but my wife knows what it is, and I'm not telling you which one it is. Don't tell anybody. Because um, I go there because I, I'm certain I'll see none of you there. And um, I can focus, and I, I love you, but I, I like... I want to be distracted. I go there, and I'm not going to see anybody I know. I can almost guarantee you it's a strange place. Caleb's guessing over there. I saw that. I saw you. you, Have I told you? Oh, great. Too many descriptions. So I'm sitting in there. I'm I'm trying to get a project done. I'm trying to focus, and somebody I know walks in. Not one of you, but somebody that I've met recently. Um, and have gotten to know fairly well. And uh, this person came in and told me, hey, since the last time I saw you, which has just been a matter of weeks, months, uh, his daughter is diagnosed um, with uh, type 1 diabetes. Same, that's the same one you said you have, right, Kendall? And she's 11 years old, I think. And uh, I could see the tears in his eyes. He said, it's all good now, but we almost lost her. It was terrifying. I mean, just horrible. And, uh, and I looked at him, I said, we shared some, some stories together. And I said, I, I, I think I could tell you, because this, this guy, he knows me. We've gotten to know each other. I said, you won't mind if I tell you. I said, you know, as I think about news like this and some of the things that we've thought about and wrestled with as a family together, the good news that we have, the good news that we have is not, just hoping for a cure of a disease like diabetes. That's good news. Kindle next week would say, there's a cure, I've been healed. That would be amazing. We would rejoice, be incredible. But we got better news than that if you're in Christ. Even though the body is wrecked and destroyed by sin and by death, the body will live again just as sure as Jesus walked out of that tomb.
that's the message we preach. And don't you see then, brothers and sisters, it is this gospel then that if we preach this gospel, if we believe this gospel, we hold fast to this gospel, then it takes on a series of other descriptions in the Bible. So this is my miscellaneous category because there's a scattering of other descriptions of the Bible, no more than two for each one of these that are interesting about what the Bible says about the gospel. It is put simply, Ephesians 1.13, the gospel of your salvation. I guarantee you, if you go out and preach about what it means to be saved, people probably think entirely different about what the Bible means by salvation. By now, you and I should see that when we say salvation, this is not something that is entirely future or disembodied. It is present and practical. It is real and assuring. God, who has his hands dirty with the world that he made, cares about the life you care about tomorrow morning or next week. So consider then these three benefits. I'm just summarizing the other ways the Bible speaks of the gospel and we're done. These three benefits of the gospel of your salvation, and they are yours now to enjoy and forever. Our text this morning speaks of the good news of happiness. I love that. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountain of the feet of the one who proclaims Good news of happiness. What is the source of this happiness? If you're, I, you, hopefully you're still in Isaiah 52. That's where we started. That's where I'm at. The source of the happiness, verse 2, speaks of liberation from slavery. That's a happy day. That's a happy day. Verse 3 speaks of freedom from oppression. You feel oppressed? Good news. Good news. Verse 6 speaks of knowing who God truly is. I love verse 6. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. If you grasp the gospel, then you will know God. Indeed, there can be no happiness without knowing who God is. The good news of happiness, verse 7 says, is to hear it proclaimed loud and clear. Your God reigns. Your God reigns. Your God has not been defeated. Your God has not disappointed you. Your God reigns. That's good news of happiness. Verse 8 speaks of the return of the Lord to Zion. Verse 9 speaks of God comforting his people because he has redeemed Jerusalem. But this good news cannot be confined by the words Zion or Jerusalem to a piece of ground just to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. Because as verse 10 says, all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This was the promise of salvation, of the good news of happiness for the whole world that never did find fulfillment until one night, until one night on the hills outside of Bethlehem, an angel appeared to a team of shepherds keeping watch over their flock and declared, fear not, fear not, I bring you good news of happiness 
Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, say it, Christ the Messiah, the Lord. Your God reigns. Your God reigns. Two other times in the Bible, this good news, this gospel is called the good news of peace. Acts 10.36 and Ephesians 6.15. Good news of peace. Peace. Who doesn't long for peace? But where can peace be found in a world with a history of war and conflict? How can there be peace when we are so polarized? I hear this word all the time. We are so polarized. We're polarized. Half the country disagrees with you, whatever you think. How does the gospel promise peace? By proclaiming that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And if your sins are forgiven, death cannot hold you anymore. Do you see that? The wages of sin is death. If your sins are forgiven, death has no hold on you. Even if you die, you're going to live. Yeah, I know. And some distant, no, no, no. It's better news than that. Flesh, bones alive again. It's the promise of the gospel. The world can only hope for temporary peace through either war or compromise, through domination or some peace treaty that we know is not too long to last. The gospel of peace says our only true hope for peace is for everyone to trust the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. So will you trust him? Will you follow him? Or will you say, nah, I'll continue down my own path, looking for peace some other way. The question simply then becomes, what do you truly trust for your salvation? I'm asking you, brothers and sisters, we believe the gospel is central to making disciples of Jesus because it's the only message we've got. It's the only good news we have. It's the only thing that draws people to salvation is the good news So what do you trust for your salvation? It sounds like a question about religion, but it is not. First and foremost, a question of, of religion. It's a question everyone must answer. What are you looking to for joy? What are you looking to for peace? That, whatever the answer is, is your hope of salvation. How's it working out for you? That, whatever you answer to those questions, is the gospel you believe. The question is, will it truly save? Can it deliver what you hope it will deliver? Is it actually good news? The Apostle Paul came to see that his only hope for salvation, the one thing he would cling to, even if it cost him his life, was the last description of the gospel we find. It's in Acts 20, 24. It's what he called the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace, grace, grace. The completely free gift of the unmerited favor of God that is available only to the undeserving sinner who will come to Jesus, the only place where this kind of grace is found. Turn to him. Trust in him. Follow him. Submit to him. He alone has the words of life. He is the gospel. He is the good news of happiness.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, may we cling ever so tightly to the gospel of happiness. It's the gospel of God. It cannot be the product of man's mind or it will not save. We should expect that the gospel will cut across our assumptions, challenge our convictions, and demand that we embrace the one who was rejected. It's the gospel of God. It's the gospel of the Messiah. It is the good news for a creation that is groaning, like we sang about a few minutes ago. Is a new creation coming? Is a new creation coming? Is there actually hope for this dying world? Or will the end be death? We ask you, O God of grace, to make us the kind of people that proclaim the good news of God and his Messiah, the kingdom that has come with Jesus. And if indeed this is the gospel we believe and the gospel we proclaim, then we ask you, O Father, to grant to us, your people, as we suffer through this life, I mean, ought not we who are followers of Jesus take on his cross? Our hope is not in avoiding all of the pain and misery. Our hope is in the one who even if we die, yet shall we live. So may we cling to Christ, find the gospel of peace, find the gospel of joy, find the gospel of the eternal grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.